everyone, and welcome to the Psych to Practice podcast, your one stop for practical and useful clinical information, masterful insight from experts in the field, and a guide to daily living. I'm your host, Paul Wagner, and today we're going to do something a little different. Uh, one of the major themes that we see throughout the podcast has been connection. So Ray and I wanted to take a step back and look at how prevalent has connection been and why does it continue to show up in all of these diverse conversations we have and be such an important piece. So with that, we hope you enjoy this practice in action episode, keeping connected. Yeah, I think that's why it's important to really think about maybe what we say and and even not only what words we say, but how we say those words. And it really makes me think of just the most important relationships in my life and the significance that I always want to give my words with them and also the ease where I lose sight of that. And I think that's where oftentimes I also get into the most trouble with those relationships or there's the greatest kind of disconnects is when I'm, I'm choosing my words poorly or I'm not really putting that intention or specificity in there. And I think that's something as you're talking about, you know, not only the words we say or how we say them, it allows for connection. Tell us a little bit about why using pop culture metaphors is maybe important in treatment and when we're working with people. Yeah. Well, so pop culture is, is maybe one of the most relatable things that we can kind of use as a foundation with people, you know, coming in to, to work with us. Um, and I think, you know, w- one important piece that we know uh, from the science is in any therapy is just a therapeutic alliance and some sort of rapport and understanding of each other. So this offers uh, a chance for a shared understanding, um, especially when we're talking through, I know, Many of us here do cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. And a lot of the concepts in CBT, when you're explaining them, can sometimes be a little abstract or um, hard to understand. So being able to illustrate these concepts with an example that our patients can really grab a hold of and relate to in a different sort of way and then relate to you in a different way because maybe they're like, oh, my therapist knows about Marvel movies, that's cool. Um, that it can be a nice way to build rapport and to teach these kind of challenging concepts that also sometimes, you know, it, it kind of externalizes the, the concepts in a way that's helpful. Um, that we're, if we're talking about something really hard like depression, to be able to kind of talk about that, um, you know, in the context of a character or um, a movie can make it, you know, seem less uh, maybe hard or, or challenging for the person to, to kind of relate to as well. You mentioned something earlier, and I, I want to just kind of do a quick callback to it with how these, like how the, these interactions are happening. And the, the thought was, is like, you know, we have to remember that we're the professionals and we know where we want to take, we want there to be the support. We want there, like, we almost kind of have a bit of a timeline in mind already. And when that student is making that disclosure or sitting down with us, they're just in that moment. And when you're talking about that adolescent wall going up and how hard it is to bring that wall back down, like 
know, we have the best of intentions. And, you know, when we're going and saying, oh, well, let's let's talk about what the things are going to help. But they're not at that place where we're wanting help yet. They're just at that place where this is the experience they're having and trying to make sense of it. And to be so in tune with that, to be able to, to hear that and make that 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 feel safe enough so that way they're wanting to invest in finding that help and they're wanting to invest in kind of what we have to offer. And it's not just someone else who's giving advice. Yes. Paul, I love that. You know, I think sometimes the best gift we can give is being in the moment with them, just be in the moment with them and meet them where they are. Right. That's kids in general. When we're in the middle of doing a suicide risk assessment, right. We're real careful to always be thinking upstream but not jumping into interventions too quickly. Right. 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 I think of CBT, right. Thought stopping, you know, um, thinking of alternate, you know, replacement behaviors. And, you know, when a student is disclosing suicide risk and they're saying things like, and I'll just give an example, you know, my girlfriend broke up with me, a boy is distressed. He's like, I don't know if I want to live. Right. And you're thinking about connections and you're like, okay. And you know, well, how can we, you know, get you to meet more people? And he's like, I don't want to meet more people. Like you're not hearing me. Right. And so in that moment, especially with kids, right. If they feel we don't hear them, up comes a wall. And how hard is it with adolescence when the wall comes up to break it back down? Right. And so also being mindful while we're always thinking and we do move to interventions that there's a place. I'm honored when a student discloses to me and I tell them that, you know, not only does it take a lot of courage to disclose suicide risk, because I always try to put myself in their shoes. What is it like that they want to go against their innate capacity to fight for life, that they don't want to be here anymore? What must that be like? And I always try to put myself as close as I can. I can never be in their shoes, but always try. And I honor their courage. And I honor that they're just, you know, talking to me about this because it is hard stuff. But that gift of just being with them in the moment some people feel like nobody else has sat with them and it can be huge. I think about my own training and um, especially early like master's degree level. And it was like, you know, play some games with kids and then they're going to have fun. And if they have fun, they're going to be more comfortable and and it's use active listening and it's those basic things. And I, I think probably, and it really attribute to kind of our time together. I think what where I've gone is that relationships so much more than just active listening. That safety comes, and you you've used the word authentic a, a lot. And and I um, yeah, I, I think that's I, it's always in my head. Your voice is in my head when I work with people because I am who I am with people. I don't try to change, and I let myself be true to myself when I'm in therapy. And that makes that relationship with them different. And even if it's somebody I don't necessarily have the same views with, they're comfortable with me because I'm comfortable with me in that moment. I'm not trying to be a textbook therapist. And you're comfortable with them. Right. 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 And it's, you know, so we're not mimicking what we've seen on therapy videos through class and trying to you know, emulate what other people have done, but really being true to who we are. And um, that that idea of authenticity, I I, just means a lot. I think that's really important part. And I think that's what that's changed my relationships. Yeah. It's interesting because there's with that authenticity, there's a mutuality 
so that the flow goes both ways. And if you're that blank screen and there's no flow coming from you, how does the person you're working with flourish? You know, so when you, th- you think about bathing all we know in the relationship, encompassing all that. You and I have tried to diagram this as right. we've been talking about it for years. Like, because all that other stuff is important. It doesn't mean you don't do homework with some patients. Right. It doesn't mean, you know, so on and so forth, all those things we've learned. But it, it's all penetrated by this um, presence of two, not just one. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think along that line, I mean, you know, maybe part of this awareness is also paying attention to our own response to other people's body language. You know, I've been in situations where people are asking me questions with their words and their body languages. Hey, I can't wait to get out of here. And I have to pay attention to that and just my own kind of reaction to that. I think doing that does help us prepare. And then, you know, again, practicing and being able to say those things uh, comfortably to people. Um, it, it's important, you know, and, and, and I think on the other side of it is really paying attention to then the other person's nonverbal. So, I mean, I, you know, part of adjusting ourself is to also have awareness of how the other person's reacting. And I, I think if we can, if we can read that and, and bring, bring that to light in some ways, right. then that can feel so helpful. Um, just this week, something, I think something akin to this happened yeah. where um, as I was going to sit down with, uh, with a client I was seeing, my thumb caught my shirt button as I was going and it right. popped a button down and it happened right as I was sitting and we started kind of getting into things. And I didn't want to necessarily stop and kind of derail things. So I, I just kind of crossed my arms over that. And for like 20 minutes, I, I'm sitting here <laughs> with my arms crossed. And I, you know, as I said before, I, I talk with my hands quite a bit. And so I'm not doing this and I'm feeling myself. It, it's not connecting. Right. And we just so happened to be talking about um, the idea of accepting help and how it felt uncomfortable for him. Right. And, you know, we're, we're really trying to kind of talk about, you know, why is that? And we land on embarrassment and it felt like a, a valuable moment to share how, you know, what is, you know, what is the embarrassment doing? It's supposed to be protective, but in that protection, it's limiting him from being able to kind of right. move freely or being able to, to, to do something more efficiently. And I called myself out and, you know, <laughs> right. and, you know, I was embarrassed and I, I said, Hey, speaking of, you know, and I explained the situation, I, you know, my, my button popped and I'm going to take a moment and fix it. Now I don't have to sit here with my arms crossed the entire time. Right. You know, now I, you know, I can connect and it really connected for him. And so when right. he's kind of talking about, and you know, he's uncomfortable talking about help, he's uncomfortable talking about embarrassment. Right. And I can feel that body. And the moment I called myself out, I, you know, I, it felt, I mean, I felt more relaxed, but I felt him be more relaxed. And sure. so it was just kind of this, this opportunity, I think, to, to bridge not only nonverbals and connecting, you know, how that can happen, but also in the calling it out, being able to then say, this is what doing something about it and being able to effectively move on from it, it looks like. You mentioned about kind of that a lot of your work are with individuals who are really stuck, that some of these basic things, um, you know, while they're important, some people, it's more, much more difficult. What does treatment look like for those who are really stuck where they, you know, it, does it look different? How do you start with them? 
What does that look like? So there's two kinds of really stuck. There's the, as the child ages, the incredibly avoided child or teen that just Mm. is like, leave me alone. I'm never going to talk. I hate you. Mm. I don't want anything to do with this. Those kids are very difficult. They're not willing to do the goals. They're, They're just very avoidant. They start not wanting to go to school. They might be very reclusive. They really aren't functioning socially, communicatively, emotionally. They're, you know, now becoming depressed or avoidant. And so that's one kind of very difficult case. And that's when you're addressing depression, if they have it, or you're addressing their avoidance. But it's also about building trust and giving them very small goals, because very often those individuals were missed. Either they had a comorbidity or a why that was not addressed or not seen as part of this. And so they were incredibly misunderstood and very mismanaged for many, many years. So it's a natural thing to avoid and create that wall around you. So the art of treatment is meeting them again where they're at and understanding this is really hard and just starting with very, very small steps. It might be just leaving their house once a week. (laughs) It might be just driving around the store location. It might be just walking around the store. One of the things that I have to do with some of these very avoidant individuals is help them realize why it's important and help them realize that this is different. Like we're going to meet you where you're at is they all have an interest. Like an example is a teenager that loved hockey, just loved hockey, wanted nothing more than to go to the hockey game with his father or mother, let's say his dad in this case. And I will say to them, so you don't want help. You're saying, leave me alone. But let's say you got tickets to go to your favorite hockey team and you see his eyes light up right then and there. And you're like, yeah, your dad's taking you, but you've got to go to will call and get those tickets because your dad's on an emergency call. He can't get the tickets. Mm. So I look at that individual and I say, you know, how how can you do that if it's hard to use your words and it's hard for you to go up to them? it's going to be hard and scary for you. Um, you know, we talk through it or I explain this to them. I said, that's why you're here mm. so that you can do the things you really want to do. Like go to that hockey game and get those tickets. There's a decision to self-disclose that happens. Um, and for me, you know, it's really based on my judgment on how it might influence or enhance what the goals of my patient might be. Um, so there, there are times I'm, I'm selecting it for the, for definitely those reasons. Um, I think it's also important though, that it doesn't, um, it's spontaneous. Like, I don't think I ever go into a session where I I'm like, well, today I'm going to tell them mm-hmm. about whatever. Um, but there are times that maybe just the moment's right. And, and I think at those times, that idea of self-disclosure, um, maybe shares a little bit of kind of our own humility or humanity or just maybe that we understand what they're going through. And I think that's a very positive way that we can utilize self-disclosure. I think intentionally there's times that we do it um, for other reasons. Maybe it's not like I have certain pictures in my office, like my, my Steeler helmet in my office is an intentional disclosure. I put it there for, for a reason. Um, but maybe that's not for my client's goal. Maybe it is to get a reaction, but it's a it's a good way to to disclose. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that idea is we have to make decisions about when and what we disclose. And I, th- I think that's what makes self-disclosure almost kind of feel like, you know, I through, you know, undergrad, grad school, even, you know, early in my career, um, 
kind of the, the perception that I would constantly get is don't self-disclose um, or, you know, it has to be, you know, you can only do it in these specific situations, which doesn't allow for that spontaneity. Um, and it, it's something, again, it, I think similar to, to some of the past topics we've talked about, if done well and done with intention, it can, you know, it pays dividends. Um, and I'm, I'm even thinking of uh, as just different self-disclosures that I make. Um, and some of them I can kind of, I could see maybe going there, but I, it's not something until the moment is there in which I'm, I'm uh, making that disclosure. Uh, for example, if, if I'm working with, uh, and I'd say this happens predominantly with either, uh, you know, uh, older children or younger, like younger adolescents um, who are really struggling with ADHD and just this like concept of like, you know, nothing's ever going to change. It's never going to get better and, and feeling kind of a, a bit helpless or hopeless with it. Um, and I share with them that I have ADHD and that's not because I think I necessarily am a role model for them or, you know, that, that, that <laughs> right. I put, put up on a pedestal, but rather as like that genuine moment of connection to say, Hey, you know, I, I can understand and empathize with that. But at the same point, there's a value that can be instilled. And that's kind of the intention behind sharing it, which is it doesn't mean that things are going to change around you environmentally. It means that you're going to have to work harder. And it means that, you know, it's not fair, but if you're wanting to be successful and if you're wanting to get the outcomes that you're wanting, then we're going to have to put effort into this and not just try to wait for things to change around us. Cause you know, it's maybe every once in a while it works out, but it, it's not going to be an effective approach. And a lot of times one, I think there's an appreciation for that, for that disclosure. Um, and, and, and it does form a bit more of that, that relationship piece, but it also then, puts a frame of reference there that says, oh, I can kind of buy into this a little bit more because of that, that relationship. I, um, I, I like this, the term management. And, and one of the things I, I've, I often see is that someone goes through a threat, threat assessment and the management they believe is just going to psychotherapy, you know, suspension. like, let's go, right. Yeah. It's, it, we, we're, yeah. Right. We're either going to suspend or, oh, if you if you do so many weeks of psychotherapy and I and I do believe that psychotherapy is wonderful as part of that management plan, but it's probably not enough. And can you give us some ideas? What are other things you look at? Like what other management options? So maybe mental health treatments part of it. But what other things are, are resources do you look to try to get in place for people who who may be at some risk? Yeah. So a lot of these individuals, to be honest with you, what we're really focusing on is relationships and connectedness. Um, it was interesting. There was a study that was just released in 2021 where they looked at some of the more recent targeted, um, in, you know, school or targeted incidences of violence in schools. And one of the commonalities that they saw is that while a lot of people think that these students who do targeted acts of school violence are loners. They actually didn't find that. What they found is they're not choosing to be loners. They're not choosing to ostracize themselves, but they're what they use the term failed joiners. They desperately want to be accepted and they want to belong to peer groups. They want to feel accepted and engaged in their school. But for whatever reasons, they're kind of being pushed aside. Now, granted, sometimes it's because they have concerning behaviors that kind of scare the other kids. So the other kids are like, oh, I don't know if I want to hang around this person. But there is a strong need for them 
to feel accepted and like they belong. So for many of these cases, it really is focusing on connectedness and relationships. So as a management strategy, for example, can we set them up with some mentoring within the school? Can we use a check-in, check-out program? Can we engage them in some small group interactions, whether it be you know with the school psychologist, the school counselor, the school social worker, building social skills, working on anger management skills, leader positive leadership opportunities, finding their strengths. Can we get them engaged with the drama club, the theater club, the band, a sports team, you know, a chess club, a video game club, you know, where are their strengths that we can help keep them connected and engaged? And then really working on too out in the community, are there things that we can foster? So a lot of times, you know, kind of in simple terms, that management piece really focuses on building from their strengths, relationship building. And then if we're finding out that there's any skill deficits that are contributing to the stressors, getting in there and teaching those replacement skills and building those skills. So again, um, they go on to lead healthy and successful lives and they can be successful academically and with relationships and in the work environment. I think sometimes we get afraid that we change so much, but there is something actually really liberating and freeing to see that, ah, you mean I'm like the ocean too? Some days I'm wavy and choppy and some days I'm calm and some days there's a riptide and yeah, that's the way the psyche is. Right. And yet there is something that you want to see is stable too, that you can hold on to. Like, is there a core self in me or is there an authentic, is there like a, a, a CEO inside me that I can keep on coming back to, or this kind of like ego that I can keep on coming back to sure there's soul center, whatever you want to call it. Certainly. But we are built, it's almost like we're built like light itself. We're both a particle and a wave, right? We're both something of substance and stability that you can measure quite easily. And we're also something that's very dynamic. That's a wave, you know? And, and I don't think there's any contradiction in that. I think that's just the nature of things. And I think if we as therapists can align ourselves as that prism, we can see then that refraction into so many different, into so many different colors of the spectrum. Yeah. See how Paul just, see how Paul just improvised for me? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like, isn't that like, uh, that is such a beautiful, like that is such a beautiful way of putting it. And see, this is what I think is what the beauty of therapy does is that I'm like now appreciating what Paul said of like, like that is so cool. And that's also the, the kind of gold we get from therapy of we kind of find the pay dirt with them to use a whole nother analogy and they find the gold and then we find the gold. And then we're just like, look at all this wealth that we have together. Like that was beautiful. Like the refraction and the prism. And you see, that's what improvisation does. It does more than talking just directly about things. It's a connection. Yeah. It, it allows for there to be that blending and whether it's an individual improvisation or if it's within the relationship itself, it, it makes it unique. The information contained in this podcast and on the Psych to Practice website is intended for informational and educational purposes only. 
Nothing in this podcast or on the website is intended to be a substitute for professional, psychological, psychiatric, educational, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please note that no professional patient relationship is formed here, and similarly, no supervisory or consultative relationship is formed between the hosts, guests, and listeners of this podcast. If you need the qualified advice of a mental health professional or practitioner, please contact services in your area. Similarly, if you need supervision on clinical matters, please locate a supervisor with experience to fit your professional needs.